0: And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, the second book of the New Testament, Matthew and then Mark. I love singing songs that walk through the history of redemption and culminate in the return of Christ. We sang the story of God's redemptive historical plan just now as we would turn our eyes to Christ. In our world today, there are so many things we can turn our eyes to, but we must be reminded our eyes should be focused upon Christ. Mark chapter 10, our text this morning will be verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command, this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This ends the reading of the word of God. Near the beginning of the 20th century, divorce rate in America was 10%. Today, 41% of all first marriages end in divorce. Second marriages, 60%. Third marriages, 73%, according to a national research group. Three out of four cite lack of commitment for the leading cause, with infidelity coming in at 60%. Yet research also shows that in the last 10 years, divorce rates have dropped. That's because of the rise of cohabitation. It has greatly increased. But we might think about these statistics and say, well, that's the world. What about Christians? are stats from Focus on the Family. The divorce rate among Christians, 42%. Only 17% report being very happy in their marriage. 40% experience infidelity at some point. 30% in their marriage in the first five years. 70% do not regularly pray together. 80% do not have regular date nights. 90% of Christians report feeling disconnected from one another in their marriage. Now, these numbers are alarming. These numbers should be saddening. Now, some of us might look back on yesteryears or generations gone by, and we wish to go back to when the institution of marriage was much more esteemed and divorce was much lower. For some of us, maybe that was our grandparents or our great-grandparents. I want you to be aware that the numbers that I've given you, although they are recent, it is a long-term issue. This is an issue that dates long before no-fault divorce in Ronald Reagan in California. No, this is an issue that Jesus himself was forced to address in the first century. So it is true of what Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. And this is what we're going to see here in Mark's passage as Jesus addresses divorce, marriage, and remarriage. Look at your text with me and follow along. Look at verse 1. We notice here that Jesus is on the move again. Jesus is now in the region of Judea and this phrase, beyond the Jordan. Jesus' ministry in Galilee, where he had been for the majority of Mark's gospel, where he ministered for at least two years, has come to an end. And Jesus is now making his way south. In Judea will be Jerusalem. He's making his way over to the path for the Passover, which he himself will be the Passover. And so his Galilean ministry is over. He will not return to this location until after his resurrection, when he tells his disciples to go. And at the end of Matthew, he gives them the Great Commission. So we notice here that he enters the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. It's important to note this location because he's in the land of Perea. This is on the east side of the Jordan River. Traditionally, the Jews, when they would travel south from Galilee, they would cross over the Jordan into Perea to avoid Samaritan territory. They did not want to go through Samaria because the Samaritans were, in their minds, the half-breeds. After the Assyrian invasion and the intermarriage, they looked at as compromisers. So Perea, they would come down this, the, the eastern side of the Jordan through Perea and then cross back over at Jericho on their way up to Jerusalem. And so this is what Jesus is doing, and this is where he is in chapter 10, verses 1 through 45. He is now ministering to a new audience. People that have not sat through his regular preaching and teaching ministry. So these Pharisees that come up to him are new to him. They're not from Galilee. And so they ask this question. But it is interesting to note, in Perea, the ruler of Perea was Herod Antipas. This is the same Herod that has John the Baptist killed. This is the same Herod that has John's head cut off for what reason? Because John looked at him and said, you are in an unlawful marriage. And his wife wanted the head of John the Baptist because Herod had conspired with Herodias. They both divorced their spouses, and Herod marries his brother's sister. It is interesting, it is in this place that the question of divorce, marriage, and remarriage comes up. Against this backdrop, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him a question to test him. They are not asking a question looking for understanding. No, they are not looking for truth. They're trying to trip him. And in reality, what the Pharisees are doing is what Jesus forbade his disciples to do in the previous passage. They're trying to cause Jesus to trip up. In the previous passage, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, they're trying to cause Jesus to trip. They're trying to cause Jesus to stumble in his words. They're trying to scandalize Jesus. And so, notice here, verse 2, they come up and they ask the question, and we will see here first Jesus' teaching on divorce. The question is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a trick question. This is a trick question for sure. But it is important that we have a little bit of context of where this question comes from. It doesn't come out of a vacuum. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Divorce has been a serious matter of contention among the Jews for centuries at this point. A little history. In the year 538 B.C., the Jews returned from exile. They were exiled into Babylon because of idolatry. They come out after the exile and they give up their idolatry, but it doesn't take long before they have a new vice, ritualistic religion. So a century later, after returning from exile, you would, get, you would read about Nehemiah and his rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. During the time of Nehemiah, there's also a prophetic book that is written, Malachi. It is your last book in the Old Testament. And so Malachi is a contemporary with Nehemiah. And Malachi and Nehemiah address an issue that the Jews are facing, facing, divorce and remarriage. Nehemiah 13.23, Nehemiah says, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. It's an interesting approach to pastoral ministry. The problem was the Jews that were coming out of the exile were divorcing their Jewish wives, the men were divorcing their Jewish wives, and they were taking pagan Gentile women because they thought they were more favorable in their eyes. Again, Malachi, he would write in chapter 2, verse 13 of his prophetic book, he says this, and the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Other translations of Malachi will say, for God hates divorce. So this is what's going on four centuries before Jesus. Let's fast forward And the Pharisees are here now asking Jesus this question that has been plaguing Jewish culture for 500 years. It didn't come out of nowhere. Furthermore, and this time, there are two predominant schools of thought. There's your conservative school... The school of Shammai, and then there is your more liberal interpretation of Scripture. This is the school of Hillel. Hillel was a uh, first century, kind of into the first century, rabbi. He's believed to be the father or great-grandfather of Gamaliel, who Paul studies under his feet. And so both of these schools had different interpretations of law. The conservative schools understood that divorce was to be permissible only if adultery is committed. Now, the school of Hillel, which is the dominant view, especially in Perea, where Jesus is, these are the liberal Jews. They permitted divorce for anything that displeases the husband. Well, where do they get this from? It's all rooted in Deuteronomy 24.1. In Deuteronomy 24.1, really 1 through 3 or 4, it is, they have sought to interpret what Moses says concerning this subject. Moses says, in Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he goes on from there. And basically, they were understanding that he has, this man has justified his divorce if he writes the certificate. The issue is, in Hillel's interpretation, of the statement, finds no favor because of some indecency. And so they were left to interpret what is no favor and what is some indecency. Well, it became this, if she burns the dinner that is grounds for divorce, according to the Hillel school, if she lets her hair down in the presence of another man, if the husband finds one who is more favorable, If she is infertile, you must divorce her. Or, as a catch-all, if anything that displeases him, it becomes legitimate grounds for divorce. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus. This is the, the history of what's going on. This is the different schools of thought. And the Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, we've got the trick question. Because if Jesus sides with the conservatives, he's going to be viewed as politically incorrect. It's not much different than today's world either, right? <laughs> but remember who's the ruler in Perea. It's Herod Antipas, and he is in this unlawful marriage. So Jesus is going to catch some heat from the political people. And they're like, ah, we're going to do it. We're going to discredit him that way. But if Jesus then sides with the liberals, then or you say, we got him. He's against the law. He's not going to uphold. He has disregarded the law of Moses. And so they're like, we got him with A or we got him with B. How does Jesus respond? Notice in the text. He says, what did Moses command you? Jesus is too smart for them. What did Moses command you? And the Pharisees, they're focusing not either on Hillel or Shammai. They're focusing on just the justification. They say, well, if we give her a certificate, this is proper grounds for divorce. And so Jesus, in verse 5 here, notice, sets them all straight. He says, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Basically, he looks at them and says, it's because you're all messed up. That's why this is here. Moses didn't write to command, to command you to justify getting rid of your wife. That's not why that passage is in Deuteronomy 24. Moses permitted divorce because you are sinners. That's what Jesus is saying. The entire commandment of Deuteronomy 24 is meant to be a protection for the woman, not permission for the man. That's the point. So that they wouldn't just keep casting out these women. Give them a certificate. Let them know. And, and so it is again to protect women in that culture, to not just be cast aside. So this is Jesus' teaching on divorce and is summarized as this divorce is unnatural. And it occurs because of the hardness of hearts. Again, Malachi 2.15, God says, I hate divorce. Just because God permits does not mean he delights in it. So to summarize it like this, divorce is a result of sin. Divorce displeases God. Divorce reveals the nature of people. Brothers and sisters, we cannot allow the world to define divorce. We cannot allow the world to justify through no fault divorce. What the grounds are, God's word is the standard. And we submit ourselves under his rule. Remember, the word of God is the rule for faith and practice. And this is practice. Therefore, we submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word. So Jesus answers their question by stunning them with his response. They say, Jesus, is it A or is it B? And Jesus says it's C. <laughs> and here's why. Because marriage has a special design for a special purpose. We'll notice his teaching on marriage in verses 9, 6 through 9. And there are so many principles here in Jesus' teaching. I, could not, I will not exhaust them, but I have to pick what I can in order to efficiently get through this I could have done this for three hours, but I will not do that to you. But we must notice here in Jesus' teaching on marriage, first we must notice to address error, it is important that to address error, you must first confront it. So he confronts the question on divorce, the issue with divorce. But it's not just to confront error, then you must correct error with truth. So Jesus teaches on marriage. And notice what he does. He roots it in creation. He says, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go all the way back. Verse 6. Notice with me. Look at your text. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, marriage is rooted in the Garden of Eden by God's institution. And he says, God made them male and female. Let me just pause for a minute and, and, and explain to you what Jesus is doing here. This is, this is awesome, what we get to see in these four verses here. Jesus is providing commentary on the Bible. The question that I've often been asked by others are, what are some really good commentaries that you, that you use and that you read? And there are good commentaries out there. A lot of them aren't, though. And so the question, what's the go-to commentary? Listen, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, It's without question. Scripture interpreting Scripture. The best commentator of the Bible, or the best commentator of God's Word is God's Son. And that's what we have right here. We have Jesus providing commentary on the Bible and interpreting the Bible for us and providing explanation and application. This is a model here for engaging the Word of God. And in these four verses on Jesus' teaching on marriage, he gives us four truths concerning marriage. I want you to see them in one in each of the verses. First, the people. We would notice here in verse 6, he says, God made them male and female. Two genders assigned. I would actually say two genders designed by God. The purpose of gender is to complement one another. It is to complete one another. Adam does not have it all when Adam's by himself. No, both male and female represent and display the image of God. The doctrine of divine simplicity basically states God is without parts, which is true. God is neither male nor female, though it is proper to refer to him in the masculine as Scripture does according to the biblical witness. But it is male and female that helps us to see the wholeness of the image of God in both designed genders. Think about Adam when he's in the garden. He's been given a task to do. This is before Eve, Genesis chapter 2. And God has assigned him to be basically the king and the priest. He is to have dominion over all things, and he is to be in the service of God. That's what the priest does. The king rules, the priest serves. And Adam is the king priest in the, the, in the garden, in, in Eden. This is why when we talk about Jesus as a second Adam, he's the greater king. He's the ultimate priest in the service, and he's the prophet. But Adam has the king priest role, and God tells him, have dominion over all the things, all the living creatures, and go out and name them. And so Adam begins his task. I I don't know all the words for the animals in Hebrew, so we'll just pretend Adam speaks English for now. (laughs) And he sees this giant thing with humps on his back, and he says, camel, and then he sees male camel and female camel. They belong together. There's elephant, male and female, there's cardinals, which look different, red and the the, the brownish-looking ones. And so he he he's he's naming all the animals. And what he's noticing here in his task is there's a mate, there's a pair. They're all paired off, and it is only natural that Adam then starts to say, "Well, there's male and female donkeys and dogs, but there's nothing for me. Where's where's my companion?" And the Lord sees that it is not good that man be alone. So he's to create a helper that is fit for him. And so we know the story. God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And from his side, from a, from a rib from his side, God forms woman out of the flesh of man. And Adam is sleeping. And then after that nap that Adam took, Adam wakes up and he sees the helpmeet that God has made for him. Now you think about this. He's gone through this process. He's been naming the animals. He's realized, I don't have someone. And then he sets his eyes upon Eve. We don't know the, 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 the depth of what was going on inside of Adam, but it is as though he is exploding when he sees her. We read in the, in the scriptures, it is, all, it is as though his, he, he, his song comes out and he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. All right, now we do have to go back to Hebrew because English doesn't get us the picture of what's actually happening. In Hebrew, the, the, the word for man is ish. The word for woman is isha. And so it is as though Adam, as he wakes up from his sleep and he beholds the most beautiful creature he had ever seen, designed by God, he can't contain himself. And he says, "Isha, this one was for me. And he is smitten by her. And his expression is that of love for her. God made them male and female. And he is to love and to protect and to serve and to do all things for her good. This is the design of the people involved in marriage. One biological male, one biological female. So, uh, just a marriage advice. Men, when your wife walks downstairs and she's gotten dressed and she's trying to look pretty, just look at her and say, <laughs> I got that from Adam. These are the people. Notice second, the process. I think that way all the time. I do. Verse seven, the people, verse six, and then verse seven, the process. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Another way to say is, leave and cleave. What this this statement does forbid is cohabitation. Long-term dating and cohabitation, premarital cohabitation, is just preparation and practice for divorce. Over the past five decades, cohabitation in America has increased by 900%, according to some studies. Others show that cohabitation before marriage leads to a 50% more likelihood of divorce. So what Jesus is saying here on the positive side is that when they come together, they form a family. They form a family. She becomes his wife. I want to observe what Jesus does not say here. Jesus does not say that a man shall leave his father and mother and move in with his girlfriend. Or split an apartment with his, long, his or her long-term partner the process here of god's design for marriage according to the son of god who is teaching us on it is that one will the man will separate from a nuclear family hold fast to his wife and form a nuclear family this is the process this is the means according to god third truth we would see concerning marriage is the purpose verse 8 and the two shall become one flesh they are no longer two but one flesh the two become one two become one they form a union together one commentator on this said quote they are no longer two independent beings who may choose to go their own way but a single indivisible unit this is why jesus takes issue with divorce You know, challenge early on, and I think we all might relate to those of us that are married. Is kind of what does this look like in the early years of marriage? How is it that uh, these two individuals then come together, and they they still are individuals, but they form a union together? Uh, Let me tell you, this is a challenge. This is certainly a challenge. I remember early on learning what it means to live in this union when it came to snacks in the fridge, (laughs) stuff in the fridge, I didn't know that that was hers. And I said, the two became one flesh. So I'll eat the ice cream. Or I would have things that I liked in the cabinet that would be all gone. And I knew it was there. And I wanted it because it was mine. And she, too, the two become one flesh. Just tell me when you eat it all, so on the ride home, I can pick some more up. It's, sometimes it's more than that, though. when you have two bank accounts and you come together, how do we do life together? You've spent your life having your own room. Now you have to share a room, and you have to share a bed with someone. There are many things of coming together. I have my routine. I have my, my, my way of doing things in the morning. I have my pre-work routine, and I need the bathroom. And she needs the bathroom. And in the little one-bedroom apartment, it was like we're stepping over each other. We're learning what it means to the two become one. And most of our marital conflict early on was just learning what it means to be together. I want to stay up. You want to go to bed. You expect me to go to bed. I want to... Those are the things. But we must do that together. So the purpose of marriage is to come together. It goes from his and hers to ours. This is our bank account. These are our cars. That's still my computer, but I, it's because I need it for work. She has her things, but we recognize we are in this together. Fourth truth on marriage, verse 9, permanence. Permanence. What God what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Need, need not much explanation on this one. God has joined the two together. It is a holy bond. Marriage is a covenant. It is a tripartite covenant. It's not just two coming together. It's a union. It's a, think of it as a triangle, maybe. It is man and woman in covenant relationship with one another under God as he has joined them together. And this is why Jesus says, let not man separate because only mankind dissolves a marriage. Divorce didn't go through the courts back then. A certificate would do. Man could separate with a certificate. Jesus says, let it not be so. So let me give some application here, even on this point, to the married Among us, remember your vows. It is till death do us part. Men, remember she is your bride. She is a daughter of the king. It is your gift and your responsibility and your privilege to love her. Women, he is God's gift to you. Though some days it might be for your sanctification. Yes, your partner is there that the person that should bring about the greatest level of holiness in you is your partner. They'll spurn you on to good works and they will teach you what patience is. But days for your sanctification, but he is also given to you for your protection and your provision. Therefore, we are to, you are to respect him. To the unmarried among us, I want you to know that this is God's truth concerning marriage. Sometimes I I, I do admit and I understand that a message on marriage really hits a sensitive subject. There are those among us who have been divorced. There are those among us who are in a healthy marriage. There are those among us who are single. There are those among us who are remarried. And how do we engage with this passage? Yes, we must engage with it truthfully and honestly. And there are some that are dying and dying and desirous of marriage. So I understand and I want to be sensitive. There are many among us right now that are single and desirous of a spouse. Oh, brothers and sisters, I want to speak to you. Do not grow discouraged as you wait upon the Lord. What can you do? Prepare yourself. Guard your purity. If you are single right now, guard your purity. Preserve yourself for your future spouse. Pray for him or her, though you don't know their name. Pray for your future spouse and trust in the Lord's timing. God is good all the time. And if you are looking in the right places, your number one priority must be godliness. It is the most attractive characteristic in a male or a female. But to all of us in here, we must understand marriage is so important because first it is God's institution. It was designed for God's purposes. And ultimately, because marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Marriage is a visible representation of God's gospel. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 5.31. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then Paul will give us commentary This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So in a marriage, understand this. The man represents Christ. The woman, the church. Christ's love for the church is so great that he dies for it. And in response, the church submits under the the loving headship of Jesus Christ. A marriage according to God's design serves as a witness to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And although the bride stumbles, sins, and is at times unfaithful, Jesus does not divorce his bride. You need to hear this this morning. No matter your sin backsliding, your wickedness, your shame, your fear, your unfaithfulness, you can always run to Jesus. Jesus is loving. Jesus is forgiving. And he gives chances after chances. Jesus desires your faithfulness. When we understand as the gospel is a reflection of marriage, we also can recognize and understand that we have given Jesus grounds, but Jesus does not divorce his bride. We have given the grounds for Christ to divorce us, but he will not. Friends, Jesus takes the harlot. Jesus takes the prostitute. Jesus takes the arrogant, the self-righteous. Jesus takes the one who has it all put together so they think. Jesus takes the depraved, the sinful, the drug dealer, the felon. Jesus loves them. And Jesus changes them. And Jesus says, you are mine. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will sanctify you. I will suffer long for you. Think about the prodigal. As he runs off and goes into all the places he should, and he was unfaithful. He disobeyed. But when the father sees him down the road, He's not thinking, oh, here comes the unfaithful one. Here comes the one who can't keep it together. He says, Here's my child. Jesus delights in his everlasting love even for the unfaithful. And if we are honest, that describes all of us. Whether this is your first, second, third marriage, whether you've suffered through divorce, whether you've had sins of the past, every one of them's forgiven. This is not unpardonable sins. I was listening to a song yesterday shared with you, most of you on, on Slack, and it just, as I was thinking through this part of this passage, it just hit me so hard. And let me share with you the Christmas song. It goes, "Oh come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know that you are not alone. Oh come, barren and waiting ones. Weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. Come, bitter and broken, come with fears unspoken. Come, taste his perfect love. Oh, come, guilty and hiding ones. See, there is no need to run. See what God has done for you. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. He's the lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing. Come, he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And we'll notice here in verses 10 and 11, Jesus will conclude this passage on teaching on remarriage. The disciples are confused. Is it possible that they belong to the Hillel school and have this liberal understanding of marriage? So they ask the question in verse 10. They're questioning him about this matter. Basically, they're saying, if this is the truth about divorce and marriage, well, what about remarriage? How does that work, Jesus? And in verses 11 and 12, we will see Jesus' teaching on remarriage. And let me just summarize it for you. He says basically this, remarriage can can compound sin. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. What's implied there is that this divorce is not on biblical grounds. It is an unlawful divorce. Jesus is saying the rule is this, that what God has joined together should not be separated. This is the rule. To remarry is to be an adulterer, according to Jesus, if we only read this passage in isolation. It's important to know Jesus is among the liberals in Perea, so he's giving them a very strict understanding because of any type of loophole, they're running with it. Jesus does not say the same thing in Matthew. Paul does not say the same thing to the Corinthian church. And so when we want to create a principle or understand a principle to live by, we must consult the whole Bible. So when it comes to remarriage, we must understand this. That Mark, even Mark's audience here in Rome are likely among a very liberal understanding of remarriage. And so when we want to understand this, we must consider the whole Bible on this subject. Matthew 5 32 in 19.9, Jesus gives what is known as the exception clause, and he says that adultery is grounds for divorce. This is an exception. Now, Paul would also provide an exception clause to the Corinthians in his teaching on marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 15, Paul states that abandonment is also grounds for divorce. For divorce if a spouse separates and leaves another paul says then let it be so the other is free to remarry now abandonment can take on many forms you can physically abandon you can emotionally abandon and then it takes great discernment and understanding all the factors but besides abandonment and adultery remarriage is not permitted in the scriptures Some in here might be in their second marriage and you know your first one ended for wrong reasons. What are you to do now? Don't compound it. Run to Christ. Repent. Repent of past sins. Seek forgiveness from the Lord and all the parties that have been affected. Love your current husband or wife as you are called to do. Make the marriage that you are in right now the most beautiful reflection of the gospel that you can. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Remarriage is not the sin that cannot be forgiven. Nor should we treat someone who is divorced or remarried any differently. We all sin. We are all sinners who find forgiveness at the cross. Who embrace Christ as our Lord and our Savior. One final thought here. Concerning the exceptions and the permission of a a legitimate divorce and remarriage, I would not do justice if I did not tell you just because we can doesn't mean we should. Though there are times absolutely for safety's sake, you should. Those Those are, again, special circumstances. But think about it. Consider the patience that Jesus has shown to you. And he says, you are mine, and I love you. And I love you in everlasting love. And I love you not based upon your performance. I don't love you based upon your levels of faithfulness. I love you because I set my love upon you before worlds were created. And that doesn't change. Jesus' love for you is not subjective. And it'll be his joy no matter how ma- maybe you stumble your way into heaven. He's gonna see you with the greatest and the biggest smile, the loving embrace of the Savior. And he's going to say, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is his joy, to present you before himself blameless. So in conclusion here, on the truth concerning divorce, marriage, and remarriage, understand this, divorce distorts the gospel. Divorce is hated by God. Divorce is a result of sin. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is good. Remarriage compounds sin, and remarriage is forbidden except on certain grounds. And remember, we all we all have a Savior who loves us, forgives all manner of sin and iniquity. Let's pray. Lord, we are unfaithful. We have given grounds to be separated but we know that your love for us cannot cease and it is not our love for you that keeps us going knowing it is your love for us who shall separate us from the love of God so father where we have been unfaithful in the past we pray for forgiveness we repent and we turn to you we thank you for our savior Who loves the unlovely, who calls sinners, who calls the least of these to be his bride, to be his church. We are thankful. God, we do pray for the marriages in our church, Lord, that they would be healthy, that they would reflect the gospel, that the men in our church would die for their wives, they would be servants. They would give of themselves sacrificially, unconditionally and the women would in glad submission respect their husbands. We praise you for your design. Though it is against all manners in this world, we recognize that you are the author of marriage and we submit ourselves to your design. Oh, may we love one another And praise you for the gospel that cleanses us from all sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.